0: Well, thanks for joining us, joining us for a great time of worship today. Would you take go back with me a few years ago? I've got a couple of neighbors that uh, I was interacting with, and as our conversation, our friendship grew, we began to talk about faith. It began. To be, I wouldn't really say interested in my faith, uh, but we began to dialogue. Now, one of my neighbors uh, sort tried to poke me as often as possible with his favorite Richard Dawkins quote, or why Bible believers, stumpers, are terrible. Um, And yet I continued to befriend him, and and we, we truly developed a great friendship, to the place at which he decided one time to try out Horizon. Now, he's not churchy, he's unconvinced, but he's seen something in our friendship that's got him interested. If I hadn't invited him to what we just experienced, a great time of worship with a few of us raising our hands, he would have said, this is crazy. Is this a snake handling church? People raising their hands. I grew up Catholic. I've never seen anybody raise their hands. That's the strangest thing I've ever seen in my life. The gap between the friendship I was building with him and coming to a great time of worship like we experienced, it's too big of a leap. Another friend of mine, who was a rock and roll guy on the side, an entrepreneur, a very successful business here in Cincinnati, but on the side he he played uh, at a rock and roll band on the weekends. And for him to come in, to this experience, based on where he was in his journey, it would just be too big of a gap, which is one of the reasons why we as a church have two different environments. So last week we moved our exploring service here because Phil Vischer was with us uh, and wanted him to speak at all four services. And so with that, those of you who were here on time, both of you, uh, got to, uh, just kidding, uh, got to hear some Van Halen that we opened the service up, and often that brings up the question, Why would Horizon use Van Halen? Why would Horizon use Peter Gabriel? If you come to our 10, 11, 10, and please, if you're going to come to two services today, wait, because we're still packing up the service. We want room for our guests. We're doing the Who and we're doing the Beatles uh, at the next service. To which people say, why would a church use the Beatles and the Who in their service? Because that's what God has always done. What? God has always used the culture, the music, and the symbols of the culture to communicate himself, as you're going to see today. Paul comes to a group of Greek philosophers. He doesn't quote the Bible. He says, your poets have said, he knows their poets. He quotes their music, their poetry, and uses that as a springboard for spiritual conversations. So we scour the music of our culture, and we find ways in our exploring service to use the music and poets of our culture as a springboard for spiritual conversations. Every one of Jesus' I am statements, I am the vine, is because the Greek culture had an I am the vine. His name was Dionysus. Jesus says, I am the bread, because in that culture, Demeter, the Greek god of bread, was the reference point. Paul used it. Jesus used it. And now you're going to see today, unbelievably, almost shocking, How God uses the language, music, and symbols of this pagan Egyptian culture to communicate who he is. And he's going to say to Moses, as he begins this mission, Yahweh says, my way is the highway. My way is the way to God. My way is to understand what God is like. And and Yahweh says, my way is the highway for two things. I want to equip the convinced, the children of Israel, to trust me and know that I'm their God. But I'm also going to go to incredible extremes to use the language and culture of the Egyptians to convince the unconvinced of who I am. And my hope is as we look at this today, we're going to see that God wants to use you and I in our culture, in our neighborhoods, in our environments to communicate who he is using language that isn't churchy or weird, but uses the language of the culture to communicate the message of God. We'll dive in together and I think you're going to be shocked at how committed God is to this. We'll look at two phrases. We're going to look at my way is the highway and are you ready to rumble? The first phrase, my way is the highway. So the Lord spoke to Moses and he said, see, I have made you as God to Pharaoh. And already it's shocking. Here is monotheism. God is the one true God. And he tells Moses that he is going to be God to the Pharaoh. It's almost sacrilegious. It's, it's, I mean, you're going to be God to the Pharaoh. When that culture, the Pharaoh was God on earth. He was a human representative of of the gods to the people. So God is going to communicate who he is through this person on earth. So he uses this very bizarre, but very Egyptian way of communicating. And Aaron, your brother, shall be your prophet. Why? Because the Egyptians had prophets. So he's communicating in a way that they'd be used to and how the gods would communicate to describe himself. You shall speak all that I command you. And Aaron, your brother, shall tell Pharaoh, who's unconvinced about who I am, And the children of Israel, who've heard about me, the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, out of the land. And notice he has two audiences. The Egyptians, who are unconvinced, and equipping and growing the children of Israel, who are convinced about God, out of the land. However, he says, as you're going about this, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. What? And I'm going to multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. Well, immediately, this brings up a deep philosophical problem, and a personal one we'll get to in a moment. So I don't see a deep philosophical problem. Well, maybe you've wrestled with this in a while, but it's worth wrestling with. Every Thursday, I take a group of teenage guys uh, skiing, and on the drive out there for 45 minutes, they ask me their hardest Bible questions for 45 minutes. And so we talked about eternal security last week. We've talked about Buddhism the week before that. We talked about uh, you know how good is good enough uh, a couple weeks ago. Well, about a month ago, maybe longer than that, we, we talked about this problem. How can God hold Pharaoh accountable when he hardened his heart? That doesn't seem very fair. That God makes you do something and then he holds you accountable for not doing it. So I want to explain that because it's a good answer to it. I took about an hour that evening answering it. I want to take three minutes answering it today. The word hardened literally means to make firm or to confirm. And so God is going to confirm Pharaoh's decision to harden his own heart. By giving him over to that rebellion. I'll show it to you in the next plague in chapter 8. Pharaoh hardens his own heart several times before God confirms or hardens or makes firm his decision. Pharaoh saw there was relief from one of the plagues. So he, Pharaoh, hardened his own heart and did not heed them as the Lord had said. But Pharaoh, again, later in that verse, chapter 8, hardened his own heart. At this time also, neither would he let the people go. It's not until chapter 9, after he hardened his own heart, that the Lord hardened or confirmed the heart choice of Pharaoh. And he did not heed them, just as the Lord had spoken. I'll show you how this might look. All of us have an issue with, you know, self-centeredness, rebellion, uh, thinking we're the center of our own universe. We've got, we've got what the Bible calls sin, what the Bible calls iniquity, what the Bible calls, you know, brokenness in us. And God will, in his mercy, say, hey, you really ought to work on this. Stop lying to yourself. Stop lying to other people. And we have a whole series of choices where God just continues in his graciousness to ask us in our decision-making to repent, to change, to admit that we got some brokenness. that God, I need your forgiveness. I need your leadership. But well, there comes a time that you lie long enough, you deceive long enough, you rebel long enough, you refuse to agree with God long enough. And what God will do is he will simply add hardener. He will make firm your decision to keep going down a path. And it looks something like this. You just continue after years saying, God, I'm not going to listen to you. I don't care what you're saying. And all God does is he confirms your decision. And all of a sudden, he hardens what you did. And God loves you enough to say, I will harden or give you over to your debased minds or to your passions... So that you can finally ram into the wall. You can finally hit rock bottom. I'll give you over to this thing you've put your allegiance in, in hopes that you can hit the wall sooner. Oh, that hurt. Oh, that was painful. And in that process that I didn't want you to have to go through, I'm going to confirm your rebellion so that you have to face the consequences of that. And the whole time my arms are open wide. Once you hit rock bottom, saying, hey, okay, now, now can we talk? Can we talk about what's wrong in here? Can we talk about what you didn't want to talk about before? And that's what God does here with Pharaoh. He uses the hardening of his heart to bring about his message to the Egyptians. Look what happens next in the verse. Pharaoh will not heed you. I'm going to harden his heart. So that, now here's the reason. Here's how I'm going to use his rebellion. I'm going to use that dark time in his life. So that I may lay my hand on Egypt and bring my armies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt. So I'm going to use his hard-heartedness and confirm it to do great signs. And great judgments that the Egyptians, here's his point, here's what it's all about, will know that I am the Lord. In other words, Pharaoh, you can be part of my program obediently, or you can be part of my program disobediently. Every, either way, you'll be part of the program. When I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. now notice again the two audiences. He's trying to speak to Egyptians, Egypt, Egypt trying to reach the unconvinced that they might know that i am the lord and he's trying to equip the children of israel mentioned here and here so there's two groups and his goal is both those groups need to be reached with the language of the culture of the day which is still coming on how they would come and know who god is so god is going to do a series of great judgments or plagues and it's not like God goes, what would be sort of crazy to do? I ah, See, frogs, frogs, I love that, frogs, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, oh, oh, boils, yeah, that boils, I love that. And what's over here? Ah, I got flies. No, God strategically picks each one of the plagues to specifically aim at a symbol in the Egyptian culture to show that he is God over their gods. We're going to dig into this even more today and then more so in the next uh, six weeks. The water turned to blood is specifically aimed at the Egyptian gods, Happy, Cunnam, Osiris, and uh, Isis as well. The frog god is the frog god of Happy, who's in charge of the Nile, and Heket, who is the frog god. There's a fly god in the Egyptian world. There's a cattle god. There's a boil god. So God is specifically contextualizing his message in the culture of the Egyptians so they would know and understand this guy is not the real God. I am. That's the process he's going to go through, which is why as a church, I talk often about what we're really about, where church is not about the band. It's not about the building. Those are nice you know, assets or nice things that facilitate God's work. But as a church, we are really about a journey, a pathway, helping people move spiritually on the journey. And everyone you talk to and you think about your own journey toward confidence in God or purpose or meaning, it almost always happens one step at a time. Somewhere along the way, you start saying, hey, I thought the Bible was irrelevant, but I met somebody who showed that the Bible helped them make good decisions. Really? The Bible can be relevant? And for the first time, maybe I took another step and I thought all Christians were judgmental. Most of them are. But I met one that seemed genuine, seemed kind, seemed like, I like what they have in their marriage. I like how he parents or she parents. And you took another step toward, I still don't believe it, but I'm interested. And then over time, you took a couple more steps. And and you finally came to the place you believed that Jesus might be God. He might be the person who could get you access to heaven. But it was a very customized pathway you took. This is not success. Looks like it'd be success. Success is when somebody who has been on a unique journey with God says, I want to go back and build relationships. With somebody who's wrestling with a question that I once wrestled with. I want to lead somebody else maybe in a Bible study that that is a chance for me to do unto others what they did unto me and help me with my questions or doubts. And, and I want to learn how to build friendships with Egyptians who don't even believe the way I do. This is what our church is all about. We are trying to build friendships with people wherever you are in the spiritual uh, continuum, on the spiritual journey. And we create three environments. One, our exploring environments. Where people who are unconvinced about God's use of the Bible come into our building at 10, 11, 10. They are not looking to raise their hand and sing to Jesus. They are looking to say, I don't know about the whole thing. I'm just trying to say the Christian's crazy. And so we use music in the culture, symbols in the culture as a reference point for spiritual conversations. And then we do great deep Bible teaching. We create other environments for people to connect. Because some people don't want to talk about their philosophical, spiritual questions. They'd like to just meet some friends, connect with some people. So we create connecting environments. And then we create equipping environments. We equip you how to be a better parent, how to be a better dad, how to be a better wife, how to to have a better family. Or in the context of this service, we equip you how to study verse by verse through the Bible, how to worship, how to take communion, how to pray. This is what our church is about if you don't understand that it's going to be frustrating because you're going to think we're a church and you're going to show up at 10 11 10 and go or bring your friends at 10 11 10 you're go, is this it's so weird it's not traditional in a contemporary service it's like what is this it's the great commission it's what god's doing here he's trying to reach egyptians and he's trying to equip the children of israel that's what our church is about and god is so committed to this he's so committed to reaching people that i think there's three principles that we can take away the first one is that god could have come down to earth and communicated directly to pharaoh pharaoh i'm god stop this nonsense but god almost always chooses to speak through people god i want to work through moses i want to speak through you i want to speak through aaron during the time of the plagues god's going to allow the darkness in their part of the land but not the israeli part of the land so the egyptians are going to say what do you have in that light that we don't have in the darkness We are God's pathway. In our new series, Custom Home, at the Exploring Service, I'm interviewing someone about four weeks who's going to talk about the death of his father and the impact that made that his dad had so much confidence in approaching death. And one of the things that struck me as we were putting the story together is he said, my dad had lots of friends who were unconvinced, and they saw the way my dad died with such hope and confidence. And he said, every time we talked to your dad, he had the same phrase. Guys, my bags are packed, and I know where I'm going. Now, they didn't believe what he believed yet. It's like, wow, if I ever am facing death, I wish I had that kind of confidence. See, you and I are God's pathway in our current circumstances. We're going to show people what peace and love and forgiveness looks like in the midst of our challenges. The second reflection from this passage I think we need to think about is this. If you and I say to God, even as a Christian, my way or the highway, God, I'm not going to believe you. I'm not going to look in that secret closet where I've been hiding this addiction. I've been hiding this sin. I've been hiding this lie for years. God will eventually harden or confirm your decision and you'll end up learning the hard way. When you say, God, I'm not going to address the bitterness in my heart, the gossip in my life, the anger that's been passed on from generations, when you choose not to deal with the hard issues God's trying to deliver you from, you'll move from God's grace to his mercy to outward rebellion and God will make firm your decision to rebel because he loves you enough that you'll hit the wall quicker so he can pick up the pieces. So for me, I think we should all operate with a shuddering awareness of how broken our hearts are and say, God, please rescue me from myself. Search me and know if there be be any evil way within me. Please, God, don't confirm what's broken in me. Confirm humility and openness to your spirit. And third, I think the reflection is that God truly is committed to these two audiences. He's the highway. Yahweh is the highway to equip the convinced and reach the unconvinced. And now, wait till you see how he goes about this. We move from my way is the highway to, are you ready to rumble? And he is ready to rumble. He's going to rumble in this first plague with Budo, with Happy, with Osiris, uh, and several others. Look at it together. Moses and Aaron did so, just as the Lord commanded them. So they did. Moses is 80 years old at this point, and Aaron is 83, when they spoke to Pharaoh. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying to Aaron, when Pharaoh speaks to you saying, Show a miracle for yourself, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your rod, cast it in before Pharaoh, and let it become a serpent. Now think about that for a second. You've heard the story so many times. What does a serpent mean in the Bible language? It's the devil. Why in the world is God using a devil stick to communicate himself? Isn't that weird? Like Hey, pick up the devil stick, and I want you to go communicate to the Egyptians that you're from me with your devil stick. That's just bizarre, really. Unless he's contextualizing the message into a culture that has a devil stick. Who has a god named Budo who protects the pharaoh, who's an Egyptian cobra. And God is going to use the language and symbols of this culture. And wait till you see what Thoth has in a second. Suddenly it makes James Taylor and Peter Gabriel and Van Halen not quite seem so radical. He's carrying around the devil stick to communicate who God is. I want you to throw the stick down and look what happens next. Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and they did so, just as the Lord commanded. And Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh and before the servants, and it became a serpent. But Pharaoh called his wise men and his sorcerers and his magicians of Egypt, and they also made their staffs turn into snakes with their enchantments. For every man threw down his rod, and all of a sudden they became serpents, and the whole place is is filled with snakes. And Indiana Jones stepped in and said, Snakes, why does it have to be snakes? (laughs) And Pharaoh's heart, seeing that his own magicians could do the same, grew hard. Here's him hardening his own heart. And he did not heed them as the Lord had said. So two questions first come up. Number one, how did the magicians do it? When I was in high school, I had two study halls one semester because I dropped a class, and I spent that second study hall uh, devouring magicians' books because I'm a magician. So I read autobiographies of Robert Houdin and, and uh, who was the precursor pre, uh, to uh, Houdini and others. And I came across uh, several ancient practices that described how the magicians might have done it. Now it could be you know, evil power, satanic power; it certainly could be that. But there also was a way that the uh, ancient magicians used to do this. They found that the, specifically, the same kind of snake as Budo, the Egyptian cobra, had a paralysis point on it. And if you learned to push on it just right, the snake would go into paralysis mode. And so it would look like a, a staff in the sense that it was paralyzed. You'd throw it on the ground and the snake would be like, you know, come to, regain feeling, like, boom, what happened, what happened? So it could be that that was the, the way they did it. It was, it's been documented in several places. Um, besides magic books, that this was a place and, and a way they did it. But God, again, wants to show, hey, you got a snake, i got a snake, but my snake can eat your snake. So he goes on, and his snake is going to devour their snake to show that he can devour their gods. Because look at how important the snake was in that culture. Look at the pharaoh's helmet. It's got the snake on it. It's got Budo on it. Budo was the one that protected the pharaoh. He spit poison at his enemies. The whole nature of the hooded mask is all about the snake. It's got the hood going around the side. It's got the cobra under the belly. So God uses a snake metaphor, which means one thing in the Bible, to communicate who He is because that was an important symbol of power and might and the gods in the Egyptian culture. And that's why He chooses this metaphor to communicate who He is and what He's doing. But it gets more crazy. Because Thoth, the Egyptian god of medicine and the Egyptian god of science, where you would go to him for healing of, of the broth, which was leprosy, he had a symbol that he used to demonstrate the power of the gods. And if you zoom in on some hieroglyphics, you'll see he had a staff. But it wasn't just a regular staff, oops, in the hieroglyphics, it was a snake staff. So Thoth carried around a snake staff to show that he was one of the gods, that he had power. So God, Yahweh, decides, I want to make sure the Egyptians understand my power, my might. I'm going to have my representative carry around the snake stick. What? Why in the world would God communicate through the snake stick? Because he was using the language and symbols of that culture so they could understand. He's a great teacher. He moves from the known to the unknown. To the reference point you understand, to the one I'm trying to communicate. That's what God's doing here. He is so committed to communicating and reaching the Egyptians that he communicates in a way that uses their language. Because Christians believe that the problem is not just false gods, we actually believe that there are demonic forces behind those false gods. <clears throat> now, this might be too weird for you to so just you can tune me out for a minute if you want. A few weeks ago we talked about behind every fear is a false god, but the Bible also says behind every false god It is a demonic force. And so when you open yourself up to false gods, you give what the Bible calls footholds or snares or opportunities for evil forces to come and to use bitterness or lust or, or unforgiveness to get into your life. Here's two reference points for it. Then you can tune me back in. In Deuteronomy, it says that when they sacrificed to false gods, oh, thanks, when they sacrificed to false gods, they weren't really sacrificing to gods. They were actually sacrificing to demons behind those false gods. They did not know to new gods, new arrivals. In Corinthians, it reaffirms this, talking about the Greeks and Romans sacrificing to their gods. When the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons, not to God. They do not want you to have fellowship with demons. So this is pretty key. Though it looks like they're being sincere in pursuing gods, the Bible actually describes in their sincerity, they're aligning themselves with something very destructive. All right, that might be too weird for you. But it does mean that we ought to take idolatry and giving ourselves over to false gods pretty seriously because it does create the opportunity for footholds in our life. You can tune me back in. So after rumbling with Budo, he's now going to rumble with happy. And again, the reference points to the culture are amazing. So the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hard. He refuses to let the people go. So go to Pharaoh in the morning a specific time, specific place. I want you to communicate this. When he goes out to the water and you shall stand by the river's bank to meet him. Stand the river's bank because you want to get blood all over your clothes. Uh, And the rod, which was in your, has turned into a serpent, the snake stick. You shall take with you. Don't forget your snake stick. And you shall say to him, Pharaoh, while he's bathing in the Nile, the source of strength, the source of uh, prosperity, the source of, of everything in the world. Let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But indeed, until now you would not hear. Next part of the verse. Thus says the Lord. But this you shall know. By this you shall, and here is the point again. Why is he doing all this? I want you to know that I am the God. I am the Lord. I am the one to align yourself with. I am in control. And I am in control of happy's domain. Happy was the God, the fertility God that was male, even though he had a breast, because he was a fertility God. He's the one that provided for you, or nursed you, or nursed your business with the Nile. Behold, I will strike the waters that are in the river, Happy's domain, and the rod, Thoth's rod, that's in my hand, and they shall all be turned to blood, and the fish that are in the river shall die, and the river shall stink. And the Egyptians, who have gone to these gods for their source of identity and purpose, and the Nile is your business, the Nile is where you got your, your, your silt for making pottery, the source of your life being these gods, They will be loath to drink from the water of the river. Again, God is specifically contextualizing his message into the language of this particular culture because he wants people to know him. As I mentioned a few weeks ago, the reason I think he turns the water into blood is because for years the Egyptians have sacrificed Israeli children, two years old and younger, into the water as a sacrifice to this God. And God is saying, the blood of the innocent cries out to me, and I'm gonna turn what you think is your source of, of joy and prosperity. I'm gonna bring out that blood that's cried out for my justice, and show you that I'm in control of this domain, and what you think is good has actually been evil. I think that's why God chooses blood. So the Lord spoke to Moses, says, okay, say to Aaron, take your snake stick, stretch it out over your hand over the waters of Egypt, not just the Nile over their streams and their rivers and their ponds, over all the pools of water, and they may become blood. And there will be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in buckets of wood and pitchers of stone. Notice again, God is working in the land of Egypt. He's using symbols and reference points in the land of Egypt to communicate one truth. I want you to know that I am the one true God. I want you to know that I am the one you can serve and forgive and find. I am the master of the universe. Now, the Nile was interesting because it wasn't just Happy that was in charge of the Nile. There's at least four gods that looked over the Nile. And God is able to communicate his domain over this world in a way that communicates all kinds of things to the Egyptians that doesn't strike us immediately. I'll give you a couple of those gods. Uh, Moses and Aaron did this. And just as the Lord commanded, he lifted up the rod, struck the waters that were in the river in the sight of Pharaoh and the sight of the servants. And all the waters that were in the river were turned to blood. The fish that were in the river died, the river stank, and the Egyptians could not drink the water in the river. So there was blood throughout the land of Egypt. All right, so blood everywhere. Osiris is one of the Egyptian gods who also took care of the Nile. He was known as the Egyptian god of death and resurrection. When you died, Osiris would take you across the river to the next life. So by Osiris not being able to defend the Nile, God is saying, He's not the god of resurrection and life. I am the God of resurrection and life. Remember how he took the the deadness of Moses' hand when he had leprosy and he brought new life into it? God is saying, I want to speak about the fact that I am a resurrecting God. I can take dead parts of your heart, dead parts of your marriage, dead parts of your addictive lifestyle, dead parts of, of spots that you say I don't feel anymore. I can bring life back into that. By coming against the Nile and Osiris, he was basically saying, I am the God of resurrection. If you need resurrection in your life, you don't go to Osiris, go to me. Osiris' wife was Isis. Interesting, if there are demonic forces behind false gods, attention interesting that Isis shows up through history even today as a destructive force. Isis, the wife of Osiris, she was the human that became a god who watched over the Nile. To which God will say, no, 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 I'm the god who becomes a human. It's the incarnation. It's resurrection. Here's the incarnation. I, the God of the universe, came to the angel of the Lord in the, in the burning bush, and I spoke as a human, as the angel, the representative of God to my people. Isis isn't the incarnation of, of the gods. I am the incarnation of the gods, and that's how it comes. With Happy, he communicates that she's not the source or he's not the source of your life. I am the source of your life. But here's where it gets even more amazing in the, in the references he used. Cunnam was the ram god, a fertility ram god, who also looked over the Nile. So if you were Egyptian, you'd say, oh, I love the Nile, and Cunnam, I really trust Cunnam. I'm praying to Cunnam, I sacrifice to Cunnam, because he makes the water go up and down so that we have enough silt for our businesses to make enough pottery. If you look at any Egyptian hieroglyphics of the gods, they're always carrying something in their right hand. It's not always the right hand, but it's always in one of their hands. So if you haven't seen it before, you'll see it all over Egyptian hieroglyphics. Look at what they're carrying in their hand. A handled cross. It's called an ankh. The Egyptian ankh, if you talk to an Egyptian, would say, oh, the ankh, this is the source of life. You can't get to the gods unless you go through the ankh. It's the key to life. We look at it now, we go, that looks like a handled cross. They believed it was the womb and a man coming together, and that was the the, the point at which the gods brought about life. But the cross was the symbol of the key to life. Thousands of years before the Romans will invent crucifixion, God will take a reference point of the Egyptians and the Romans eventually and say, you think it's an electric chair, it's going to be the source of life. I'm going to not allow you to go through the ankh to get to me, I'm going to come and die for you on an ankh. In like even Coptic Christians today have adopted this very symbol, the handled cross, as the sign of what Jesus did for us. Because God wants you to know He's a resurrection God. He's the incarnation God. He's the sovereign God. And He's the kind of God who gives you the key to life, the breath of life, through losing His own life on an old rugged cross. And this will be the key to the next world. This will be the key to finding life and life abundant, just not in the way that they may have thought. So the magicians of Egypt did so asked the question if all the waters turn to blood what water do they have that they can do the trick again we'll find out later you can still dig a hole and get some out of the water out of the ground they did so with their enchantments and pharaoh again hardens his own heart and he did not heed them as the lord had said and pharaoh turned and went into his house neither was his heart moved by this so all the egyptians dug around the river They had to dig their own wells to find clean water for water to drink because they could not drink the water that was provided for by the the realm of the gods. And the seven days passed after the Lord had struck the river. So I think the application to us is several of them. But I think the thing I thought about as I was thinking about this message for the last four or five months is this. Is my heart moved by the things that move God's heart? I think there's several ways to reference this in this passage. Is my heart moved by the things that move God's heart? Number one, unlike Pharaoh. Pharaoh's heart was hard. If you want to be moved by God, you need to, number one, have a soft heart that's open to change, it's open to conviction, it's open to him saying, hey, hey, let's talk about this. Don't ask me about that, God. I want to be moved by the things that move God's heart. In order to do that, I need to be open. Open with my traditions, open with my my secrets, open with my thoughts, and say, God, I do not want you to make firm the rebellion in my heart. No, God, soften me, rescue me, help me. Help me to be moved by the things that move your heart. The second thing that's clear in this passage is, if you're really serious about following Christ, you've got to have your heart moved by wanting to reach Egyptians who do not believe the way you do. And there's a sad tendency in the Christian life. i am bring it over here, Sue. At least most people can see it, and I'll turn it. The longer you're a Christian and you're growing spiritually, there's almost indirectly proportionate or disproportionate that your time with unconvinced people goes down. So people say, I'm a very mature Christian. Oh, tell me about all the unconvinced friends who don't believe the way you do, you hang out with. Well, when I was 20, you cannot call yourself a follower of Christ who's committed to the main mission that Jesus talked about, the Great Commission, and not care about or build a relationship with people who are far from God. You can pretend it, and then what happens is you end up in church saying, hey, the church is all about me, how can it be more about me, rather than how can we make the church more about who God's trying to reach? So I think it's worth thinking about and asking yourself, if you're committed to the unconvinced, you're also going to be committed to the convinced. But I found that if you're committed to the convinced, you're not often committed to the unconvinced. I think we need to ask ourselves, does our heart break over the things that God's heart breaks over? Third, are we committed to equipping other people, other Israelites in our life? If somebody invested us in a Bible study or served us, are we serving and investing in other people to help them in their journey? I think there's also something in the text about are we moved by fighting injustice? God comes and brings blood out of the river because of the injustice. I think if you're going to be moved by the things that God's heart's moved by, you're going to be concerned about injustice. You might hear about the 13 to 15 year old girls in Belize when our Belize teams go down who end up in prostitution and all it takes is $350 a year for them to go to high school and they wouldn't have to go into prostitution. And you find out about that and you're like, oh my goodness, I've got to be moved by the things that God's heart's moved by. We've got to do something about this. We've got to engage in this. You look at the world today, you see whether it's a, the, the, the widow or whether you see it's a, the hurting mom or the single mother and you say, God, you care about these things, hurting things. I want to engage in people's chaos. I want my heart to be moved by the things that move your heart. And I want, God, you to use my current circumstances to proclaim your power and your might. And if you're going to ask me to carry a snake stick, I might be a little uncomfortable with it. But if that's the best language and that's the best symbol to communicate to this culture, God, I want to embrace it. Because I want you to use me in the midst of my cancer report, in the midst of my audit, in the midst of my business challenges. I want to show people what God looks like in the midst of difficulty. I want my heart to be moved by the things that move you. I want to be an ambassador to this world like Moses was. Is your heart moved by the things that move the heart of God? Do we really believe that God's way is the highway to reaching the world? Let's pray. Father, will you just stir up our hearts? Will you put your finger in any area of our heart that's not soft to you? where that hardness is affecting our role of being a dad or being a husband? It's affecting our ability to be open to what your spirit may want to do in this time and in this place. And God, will you break our hearts for those that we walk past every day who don't know you, and they don't know forgiveness, and they don't have the security of knowing that heaven is a secure place and that you're the access to it. Through all these things, Father, we just pray that you will uh, make us the kind of people you are, people of humility. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you for being here today. As you leave today, uh, if you can't prepare to give, you can... uh, uh, use our offering boxes. We also are starting a new home- series called Custom Home. If you're interested in that at our second service, there's some books that are just a great devotional for digging deeper into uh, what God's doing. So you can grab one of those on your way out as well. Thanks again.